If you would, um, turn to Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. Judges 6, 1 through 10. If you're there, would you all stand as we receive the word? Judges chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Here's the word of God. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Malachites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted, so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God, and you shall not fear the gods of Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. God, we receive your word. Thank you for your word. I pray that our hearts would be softened and sensitive to the truth that you are going to declare to us. Keep us humble. Keep us attentive. May our hearts be yearning for your word. Be with your servant for your will to be done among the hearts and minds of the people. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the book of Judges. Once again, it is a fairly simple story for us to understand, for us to grasp what's happening in this book. What's happening in the book of Judges? Guys, book of Judges, look up. Here is a faithful guy, and here is unfaithful people of God. And this is just a key repeating how a faithful God delivering, rescuing these unfaithful people. That's pretty much the story of the book of Judges. As Eugene shared, it's, there is that percentage of among Akka people, there are Christians. And yet, 
out of that number, only 20% are Christian. I don't know how you could even come up with that statistic. You know what I mean? You have this many, say there is 100 Christians, 100 people of God, and only you could tell by their lives, how they conduct themselves, you could tell only 20 of them out of 100 are true, real Christians. By what standard? By the definition of what we have in this book, which is mind-boggling. Because if you think about 80 of that 100, do you think that they will consider themselves not Christian, not being saved, not in that number as designated, identified as the people of God? Because that 80 will not see themselves. I promise you that they will not consider themselves as non-Christian. You see, here, this is a faithful God dealing with unfaithful people. And out of these unfaithful people, you know, they will consider, consider themselves to be what? The people of God. They will never see themselves as I'm, I'm pagan. I am these foreigners who has no God, no hope, no future. I am the chosen. Once again, when you open the book of Judges, we will be introduced with the new judge. Once again, without a leader, without Deborah, without Barak, what happened? They will fall again. They take their eyes off again. They will revert back to what's pleasing to their eyes, what's easy and comfortable for them. And they will fall into traps, snares all around them, and they chase after gods of the land. And what happened? That will lead to God's judgment. And God would hand them over to an oppressor, and in this case, the Midianites. And they will cry out, as we will see. And in response to their cry, God would end this pattern because he is faithful. As they cry out, he will raise up a, a savior, raise up a deliverer to judge their enemy in order to rescue them out of that, that situation. But what we have, what we just read, is very unique in that cycle. Before the story of Gideon, it has a lot to do with the story in itself. We see something uh, unique to this cycle, something that is disruptive, unique to the cycle that we have seen up to this point. Now, in verse 1, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. It's not surprising. It's not surprising. It's not shocking to us anymore. Okay, here we go again is our response as we read that line, isn't it? Here we go again. Israelites failed to remember who God is and what he has done and what he has promised to do. And yet, they turned to idol worship. Therefore, God gave them, again, 
into, he sold them into the hands of the enemy, the Midianites this time. Now, one thing unique about this oppression is that the Midianite oppression was probably the shortest up to this point, only seven years. It took them seven years to cry out to God. It's not because they were sensitive. It's because the oppression, although it was short, it was oppressive. It was bad. Why? Because previous one, the people, the invaders will just simply demand tribute. X amount of money, crops, and these people bring them to us, right? But in this case, they don't have any demands. What they do instead, as we read, they will come in numbers. And not only the Midianites, they will invite, uh, uh, what was the, another, Amalekites. And the Easterners, that means here's a Jordan, and east of the Jordan, these people will come across Jordan and occupy the land that belonged to the Israelites. What do they do? Not only invade, they make home. They pitch tent, and they destroy, and they come right at the time Israelites are about to harvest. And they eat all the hard work that Israelites put in. And because of that, Israelites have nothing to feed their sheep, ox, donkey. There's nothing. They got no livestock because of that. And they put ruins through the towns so that what do they do? They run to the mountains. Now they hide in the caves. It is by far the most oppressive uh, uh, the affliction, the judgment that they have received in the hands of the enemy. And it says in the Bible, during this time, the nation was brought very low. So it was severely weakened. The Israelites were just in the weakest state up to this point. So eventually, as they were starving, as they were Homes were ravaged in verse 6. The impoverished Israelites cried out, finally cried out. took them seven years, by the way. By the seventh, after the seventh harvest, they really had no reserve. They finally cried out to the Lord for help. Now, up to this point, the cycle is normal, isn't it? The God's judge is gone. The leader is gone. They took their eyes off from God. They do evil against God. God becomes angry, and God hands them over to the enemy. And then the oppression, affliction happens in their distress. What do they do? They cry out to the Lord. Up to this point, this, this follows the normal pattern. And according to the normal pattern, what would be the next step in the cycle as they cry out to the Lord? God would raise up a judge. The judge would be sent. But look at verses 7 and 8. Something out of the ordinary happens. So look, verse 7 and 8, it says, When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites. So in other words, because of their disobedience and disloyalty, because of those, and in God's anger and wrath, he hands them over 
to the Midianites, and because of the Midianites, now the Israel cry out to the Lord. And then, look at verse 8, the Lord sent a judge. Oh, interesting. The judge is not sent. For the first time in the cycle, we see a new character, a prophet to the people of Israel. Unlike the previous times, God's response to the cry of his people is not a judge, but a prophet. He did not send a savior, but he sends a message. He sends a sermon to the people first. Now, after seven years, they're impoverished. After seven years, they are hungry. After seven years, imagine they are miserable as they can be. So they cry out to God for help. Now, look, put yourself in that shoes as I describe what was going on. What are they asking? What are they asking? God, help us. They, they were crying out for help. What do you think they're asking to God? God, please deliver us. God, get us out of this mess. God, give us some food. God, give us livestock. God, we are hungry. God, destroy our enemy. Please, God, do whatever you can, whatever you always have done. When you, when we cry out to you, send your judge and rescue us, please. Right? That's what they want. What they're, what they're asking. Raise up a judge. Deliver us from this pain and suffering. I'm pretty sure that's what they're asking. In the ne- in that phrase, for help, this is what they're asking. Right? But as we see this cycle happening before our eyes repeatedly, is it just me that you think that they're taking God and his grace and mercy granted? You know? Does it seem like and feel like it seems that Israel has begun to take God's grace for granted? As if they can just use God. As they can just fool God. Manipulate. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. This is more than twice. What are they doing? They're just manipulating, abusing God's grace. It awfully feels like it. What they're doing is this. They, they, they revert back to what they used to do. They do what pleases them, and they get in trouble with God. And then what do they do? They just simply call out to God, and God comes and rescues. It's that cycle. It's like they're taking God's grace, God's patience, God's faithfulness, and abusing it. However, this time, again, God breaks that cycle. Where the judge should be come on to the scene, he sent a prophet. We don't know the name here, but there is some conjectures out there where we could guess who might this be. 
But the point I want to make is God breaks the cycle. He doesn't raise up a deliverer, a judge to save uh, his people from their enemy, but instead God sends them a prophet to give them a message. In that mess, in that affliction, in their hunger and thirst and oppression, they cry out to God, and what they got was a message, because certainly that's not what they were asking for. But that's what they received. Unfaithful Israel asked for relief, asked for help to faithful God. Because what they see as to be the problem It's not what God sees to be the problem. Does that make sense? What they see to be the issue in their current circumstance is not what God deemed, what God identifies to be the issue. Why? Let's look at it. Because in God's mind, what was the real issue? Midianites? Is Midianites the issue? Amalekites is the issue. Impoverishment is the issue. Homelessness is an issue here. For Israelites, it might be. For Israel, they would think that their lives were in chaos all because of these, these Midianites. These barbaric people. But let's face it, their lives were in chaos because of their relationship with God. Because their relationship with God was utterly destroyed. And that relationship was utterly destroyed because they have committed blatant act of evil against God himself. Because they refused to give up their sinful ways and insisted upon doing and living according to their own ways. That was the issue. Church, I tell you, look, more often than not, I live, I guess, long enough life to understand, I'm seen enough to understand that God is more interested in our understanding of the current circumstances then rather than he is with our help or relief. Does that make sense? God is more interested in the wound itself rather than what kind of band-aid I have to put on to cover it up. He's not interested in a band-aid. He's interested in what's the cause of this problem. Because that's what's going on here. Before they can appreciate after cycle, after cycle, after cycle, before they appreciate God sending a judge, before they realize what kind of faithful God is as this judge saves them out of this messy situation, for them to fully understand and appreciate what God has done for them, God wanted them to understand why in the first place they needed to be rescued. God really needed them to understand why they were in this terrible predicament. 
He wanted them to understand what happens when you fail to remember who God is and what He has done already and what He promised to do. Be their God, be the Lord of their lives, and they will be His people. They, God wanted them to understand what happens when they chase after idols, when they no longer fear God, but fear the gods of the land. He wanted them to see what they themselves have done by trading God, by trading God, with the pagan gods. That's the heart of the issue. It's not the hunger. It's not the loss of home and their land. They're crying out because I got no food. My, my kids don't have a room or a bed to sleep on. We got no water. We're living like cave people. And they see that as a problem. But God wanted them. That's not the problem. That's not the issue. Issue is right here with you and I. You see, the amazing thing, an amazing love and merciful thing that we see here in the message in itself, the purpose of sending his prophet is this. It's not just to scold them. I think there is that aspect of it, to rebuke them. Look what you have been doing. Right? And in order to remind them. But more importantly, what's really the purpose of this message through a prophet is, hey guys, I can fix this one. I need you to fix it so that we never return to this state. So that you don't have to cry out to me. That's what he's going at. So what's the message through his prophet? First and foremost, through a prophet, God told the Israelites what he has already done. All right, here we go. He repeats this, verses 8 through 10, and many times before in this book and previous book, I rescued you out of Egypt, I freed you out of slavery, and I delivered you from not just Egyptian, but all of your oppressors. Name them. I rescued you. I delivered you. And I also gave their land to you as I promised. You're living in the land that I deliver to you. And I repeatedly remind you that I am the Lord, not you. I am the Lord. I am your God, God who demands and deserves your complete, exclusive love and obedience. And he demonstrated that worth, worthiness of such demand. And I told you not to fear other gods, not to worship other gods. And then the second portion, he told them what they really have done. I told you all of these, what I wanted you to follow, but what did Israel do? You have not obeyed my voice. You heard it, but you dismissed it. You heard it, but you ignored it. You read it, and you just ignored it. I have done all these things for you. 
but you have not obeyed my voice. Guys, we can hear the same, same line from God himself. I've done all these things for you. I moved heaven and earth and I sent my son and I made cross happen because that is the way for you to have the eternal life. And I demanded you to l- remain in my son Jesus Christ and live a life as glory and honor to my name. But you have not obeyed my voice. And out of that hundred, how many percent of us would qualify to fall under this statement rather than, God, I did obey. God, I remain in your son, Jesus Christ. Again, let's go back to the story. Why did God send the prophet? He sent the prophet. Because he has a message. He has a message because he needed to convict their hearts. Why does he need to convict their hearts? Because these people are regretful, but not repentant. They're regretful, but not repentant. What's the title of the sermon? Regret or repentance? Guys, is there a difference between regret and repentance? Think about it. Regret and repentance. What's the huge difference that you could think of? What is the major difference? Think about it. Now, regret, normally, when does that regret, the feeling, the emotion of regret happen? When you get caught. When you get caught, when you're faced with consequence, you get this feeling of regret. Regret happens when you are caught. However, repentance occurs when you are convicted. There's that huge difference. Regret is sorrow over the consequence of sin, the fact that you are caught, but not over the sin itself. That's the difference. If there had been no consequence, if you were not caught, then would there be regret? I highly doubt that. I highly doubt that. Therefore, as soon as the consequence goes away, when you are just simply regretful, when the consequences kind of mellows down, it goes away, by sending a judge, by God hearing your plea, and he rescues you and make a path to, for you to survive, to see another day. Guess what happens for these regretful people? <laughs> the same behavior returns. The exact same action that caused them to be in that predicament in the first place will take place again. Why? Because they were just regretful. They're not repentant. Because the heart has not changed. The heart is not disgusted by the sin that caused them to feel regretful. 
That's the problem why we see this repeated cycle. The difference between regret and repentance is only known in time by the evidence of a changed life. A man caught in the act of pornography. A person who is caught in an act of sexual immorality will often plead for second chance, will plead for understanding, will plead for forgiveness for that second chance. But more often than not, their lives will not be changed. Whereas a man was deeply convicted by the Holy Spirit will do anything and everything in order for him to deal with that cause. If he must, because he was convicted, he will quit a job. He will uh, uh, end that relationship. He will cancel, uh, cancel his uh, subscription of whatever that caused subscription of his internet service, he will throw out his even brand new spanking expensive computer if it needs to be. He will turn to a faithful friend and confess and ask for accountability and hang out with a godly group of men and even talk to simply humbly come to a pastor or a leader and ask for help. Because I need to do everything and anything and everything in order for me to not to revert back to this state. If you're convicted, not just regretful that you're caught and regretful that you have to live this life and, and fix this mess. But if you're convicted by the Holy Spirit, the biggest motivation of doing that is because you now realize you have broken a relationship with God. Out of your immorality, out of your sin, you realize that you have broken the heart of God, the Lord who died on the cross for your sake. You broke his heart. You nailed to his heart again. That realization is repentance. Will cause for a person to turn, not just being Regret. I wish I hadn't done that. It's not it. That's regret. Repentance would be, I will never be here. They cried out to God, and instead of a judge, they got a prophet. And you did not understand, I've done all these things to you, and I demanded that I and to be your Yahweh, the one true living God, but you have not obeyed my voice. Folks, regret, when you think about it deep down, regret is all about you. Regret, when you feel that emotion, regret is all about you. How I'm being hurt, how I am being mistreated, how my life is ruined, how my heart is breaking apart. It's all about you. But regret, unlike regret, repentance is all about God. Repentance is 
all about how God might feel because of my choice. Repentance is the truth that you have broken the heart of God, that you have trivialized and abused His repeated grace and mercy, His faithfulness. And you no longer love God as much as you love these things of the world. We all know the fact that the people of Israel were idolaters. They were repeat offenders. And, at, and God's response to their crime was faithful, like clockwork, by sending them a judge, a savior. But this time, he sent them a prophet in order to show that it is not the regret that he desires. The regret will revert back to where they were. But what he desires is repentance. They're crying out to the Lord, but because they're regretful, not because they're repentant. How do we know this? If you look at the following verses, there's no sign in verse 11 and on. And I will see, I will share that in the story of Gideon. If they are repentant, you know what they will do? They'll bring out all the idols, break them down, burn it, ashes, pulverize it. But do we read anything remotely resemble the repentant action, turning away? No, they're just simply regretful. God, you caught me and you punished me. And out of that, I am just regretful. I'm maybe even remorseful, but not repentant. Because why? By sending them a prophet, God wanted them to move beyond the stage of regret into the stage of repentance. Because that true repentance does not take place, the cycle remains. It repeats again. What do we learn from this? There are many things we can learn from this. But the most important thing is, when you are sorry, you need to check why you're sorry. I hated it when my parents confront me when I say sorry. We all know what I'm saying sorry for, right? But as I stand before them and I say sorry, and they ask me, okay, what are you sorry about? I hated that. I would just keep my mouth shut and I'm just so, I don't know, prideful. I don't know what the pride will get me because further punishment is on its way. You say sorry, but what are you sorry? If you feel sorry to God, and you need to be specific, I think that is the most important lesson that we need to know. Are you sorry about the consequence of sin or the sin itself? Are you sorry because you are caught are you sorry because you lost your way? Lost the, the pleasure and comfort of your life? Or are you sorry that you damaged the relationship you once had with your God? 
your love, your Lord. That you have broken this trust with God. Are you sorry because of that? Or are you sorry because it's inconvenient? It's awkward. Folks, we know, we are old enough to know the difference between normal growing pains and mistakes. I know my kids, Matthias, Milo, Silas, they will all go through growing pains and growing mistakes and they will make them. And they need to make them in order for them to learn from their mistake and never do them again. But there is difference between growing pains and growing mistakes, spiritually speaking, versus repeated pattern of same sin. There's difference. You can fall. I can make mistakes. But the number of falls and intensity of your fall has to decrease and even out as we remain in Christ. Make sense? As we live a life of repentance, we gradually have that upward trajectory as we do this. But as we get older and mature, this becomes like this. If you're just simply regretful for the trouble, for the consequence, the fact that you got caught, and you're unwilling to identify that sin that caused you, and reject that sin and and just denounce it, then the chances are you're going to repeat that cycle again. Just like the Israelites. Folks, we have to stop taking God's grace and mercy for granted. We have to stop abusing His faithfulness. The real problem is not what you are going through. The real problem is not what you are going through physically, spiritually, emotionally. What the real problem that you and I have to face is the broken state of your relationship with God himself. Is he God? Is he the Lord? Or are you the God? Have you obeyed his voice? Or are you listening to the voice of the world? Or of yourself? The real problem is the fact that you no longer love God as much as you love yourself or everything else. Again, I mentioned it earlier. Did Israel repent? That's what God desired. They're regretful. After this many cycle, they're regretful. They know what to do. They got nowhere to turn to. It's so bad they cry out to God. But God this time sends a prophet hoping they're not just regretful but repentant. But I don't see that happen. We will see Gideon, what he will do. 
how he will break the idols and how he has to do so in order to really the people to be repentant. Folks, there is no repentance. Yet, if you look at verse 11, which we'll get to, um, the Lord nevertheless sends his angel to who? Gideon, the next judge. He sends a prophet, he sends the sermon for people to be, go beyond the stage of regret to stage of repentance, but there is no repentance yet. You know what happens? He is still working to save them. And he sends an angel to talk to Gideon, to commission him to be the judge to save his people. Even though the people are not repentant. That's called grace. That's called faithfulness. Church, God does not wait for you to repent before he begins to work on you. Save you, deliver you, bless you. Romans 5a. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While you were repentant, Christ died for you. While you were regretful, Christ died for you. No. While you were sinner, deep, knee deep into your sin, Christ died for you. God does not begin to save you until you repent. Then we're in trouble. And that's not how God operates. And thanks be to God. Amen. Thanks be to God. But we repent. Why we repent then? We repent because he has already begun that saving work for us and in us. We repent because Christ died for all of our sin, past, present, future. We repent because the Holy Spirit is convicting and speaking and we know better. Folks, don't regret, but repent. Don't regret, but repent. If you have to remember anything, remember that line. Let's not be regretful, but be repentant. And if you are repentant, oh, this seems awfully familiar. What you're going through when you turn to God in prayer, when you are in desperate need, if it looks and smells like you have been there, you haven't been repentant the previous time. May you be repentant. Don't be just regretful. Sometimes I should be thankful for some of you being regretful because if you are hardened to the point that nothing penetrates your heart and you will not even feel that emotion. You will need seven, eight, long, excruciating pain and suffering in order for you to be regretful. That's what happened to Israelites. Let's not go there. God's merciful, gracious message to the Israelites, hey guys, I will, and he is sending Gideon. But the message is, can we not get here? I want to spare you for that pain for that oppression. 
I want you to be blessed. Let's pray. David once prayed this prayer in Psalm. And the theologians all agree that was not one time line that he prayed. It was more like his repeated prayer, more like it was just habitual thing that he has done every time he came to God in prayer. And that prayer was well known. Search me, O God, and know my heart. God, will you test me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. It's not one-time prayer, but repeated. And as God searched his heart, as God tests his intention, as God goes deep into his thoughts, and as God revealed the offensive, ungodly, evil things in his life, he repented. He turned away. He's not just regretful or remorseful because if you are regretful, you don't make this prayer. If you are just sad about the, the fact that you are caught, you don't make this prayer. But because you are convicted, because you understand what's at stake, you are breaking God's own heart. The Lord who was pierced and nailed for our sake, we're doing that again to the Lord. That thought in itself is offensive and convicting and is disgusting. And we turn to the Lord and repent. Search me. Test me, Lord. Understand my thoughts. And if there is anything that is against you, will you let me know and lead me in your ways, not my ways, in your ways? God, I thank you for the message. Thank you for the example that the Israelites left behind for us to see and learn. God, if we imagine your heart as you repeatedly, as you faithfully saved your people, one can only imagine how broken your heart was. How disappointed and how how, how in despair you might have been. God, we know who we are in Jesus Christ. And if we truly know who we are and what you have done, just like how you rescued the Israelites out of the slavery of Egyptian, you have rescued us, the slavery of sin. You remove the chains on our wrists and our ankles and you freed us. And you declare to us we're free. Live a life. A life that is pleasing to God. Because God, you have given us 
the life and you deserve all that we have, all that we own. Yet God, how easy it is to abuse. How easy, how often we trivialize the cross, the grace, the faithful God that you are. God, we ask that you would speak to us each and every day. Graciously reveal the things that we need to learn and never return to by your grace. God, we pray for your blessing because we know that you are working for us. Because we know even at this moment when we are distant from you, you love us and you work for us and you are doing everything in order to bless us and save us. That's who you are. That's your heart for us. If we know anything about you then truly understand your heart, God, help us by your Spirit come and fall before you, beating our heart, for we are sinners in need of you. You rescue us and restore us and help us not to return. Bless your people, Lord, in our daily lives, at a school, at work, at home, everywhere we might be. Help us to be mindful of who you are, what you have done, and listen to your voice. God, we thank you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.